if, for example, no one is rating, reviewing, subscribing, or liking your content, then um, you're not going to hit it big with Elvis. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the podcast where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with some of the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some pretty famous people. Yes, and we are coming to you uh, from the 54th week of 2020. Oh, God, yes. Uh, it has surprised <laughs> us all. And, and uh, yeah, it's been horrendous. Absolutely awful. It's almost like 2021 looked at 2020 and said, hold my beer. Yeah. I can't imagine how it gets worse. Because actually, I can't imagine all of the ways. I guess like this is it's just been the future where it was very clearly the thing where for four years, everybody who has either had to experience systems of oppression firsthand or like read about systems of oppression or like had their eyes open and paid attention would have been like, oh, this is going to get very bad. And then it was the week where it was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what we expected. While other people like sat on the sidelines and were like, who would have thought? Right. Well, I mean, I don't think a lot of people imagined a um, attempted coup by fascist white supremacists in the last week of the president's term or I mean, last two weeks, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think the the point I'm trying to make is... Like, that's exactly who Trump has always been and who he said he was. Yes. And the fact that he actually did it is both, like, appalling and, like, a new fresh hell and also, like, completely in line with everything we've ever known he wanted to do and was willing to do. The thing that surprises me the most about it, to be honest, is how unsophisticated it is. So I've, I've heard people talk about this, and I realized why this... I disagree. It was for like 95% of people. But then there were 5% of people who came with zip ties ready to take hostages, who came with encrypted military radios, people who came with pipe bombs, multiple pipe bombs that they prepared for transit. Gallows in a noose. Right, like placed the pipe bombs and then like were ready to trigger and, and wore like nondescript clothes. So like for a lot of people, they were just like stupid and you know, caught up in the moment. And then for this, like, very critical subset of people that have been saying, we are getting ready to kill the next three people between Trump and Pompeo in the line of succession, this was the time when he said, go do it, and they went to go kill the next three people between Trump and Pompeo in the line of succession. There are fascistic white supremacists who are ready to overthrow the government given the chance, and Trump is cheering them on, and Hawley is cheering them on, and Ted Cruz is cheering them on, and... There is no unity until those people are gone. Absolutely. But other than that, everything was pretty good. I mean, I mean can't complain. Uh, yeah, you know. Found some new really good vegan chocolate ice cream that <laughs> yes. I've been eating every God, night. It's so good. It's so good. If you're uh, vegan or plant-based and you want to know about this ice cream, message us because it is legitimately the best chocolate ice cream that I've had in years. Yeah, I feel like if we'd done just a 
tiniest bit of diligence, we could have plugged them right now. But now I'm too lazy to go downstairs and figure it's out like what it Belafonte is. It's like Belafonte or something. Yeah, I think so. It's like Houston. It, yeah, and Houston. it's water-based. So it's not like it's not the base of the ice cream is not milk-based, which can sometimes make it kind of sour or have like a very distinct, this is vegan flavor. But this is water-based. And I don't know how they do it, but they're doing it. They're doing it hard. Yeah. Uh, speaking of doing it hard, who's our hero this week? Well, funny you should mention it. Uh, this hero this week does go hard. We have, I think, one one of the more wild roller coasters of our heroes recently. What? I know. Two weeks ago, we were talking about St. Nicholas resurrecting pickled children. Okay. And you're about to tell me that today's hero I is... take it back. I take it back. You're going to have to cut me saying that because I can't live up to that hype. I cannot live up to that hype. We have a crazy story and a very interesting character. This week's hero, Mr. Johnny Cash. Wow. Mr. Walk the Line himself. Yeah, the man in black. So... Uh, before we get too far into it, what do you know about Johnny Cash? Well, I saw the Joaquin Phoenix Reese Witherspoon movie called Walk the Line. Oh, you did see it. Okay. I did okay. see that. And um, I know that he died basically almost immediately after June Carter, his wife died. And it was like a whole big, everybody wanted to romanticize it. Those are the things I know. I don't. I don't know too much between... His birth and dying right after June. Sure. Well, then let's dig in. Let's do it. So his parents could not agree on a name. They went back and forth a lot. So he ended up being born J.R. Cash. Just initials. Just initials. Didn't stand for anything. It's the original Elon Musk baby. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, So J.R. Cash. Uh, was born on February 26, 1932. Okay. And as you know, that means it is time for Elliot's Geology Corner. (laughs) (laughs) So for people born in February, their birthstone is amethyst. (laughs) Amethyst is a violet variety of quartz. Comes from the Greek, A meaning not, and uh, methisko meaning drunk. Oh. Yes. So amethyst is actually called that because the ancient Greeks had a belief that the stone protected its owner from drunkenness. I believe that too. Yeah. Uh, and I'm willing to believe a lot of things right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, what I can say is, as his birthstone, he could have used some of that. <laughs> Ineffective. Yes. It actually owes its violet color to... Uh, radiation. So if it's mm. just quartz with uh, some iron impurities and then radiation turns it purple. Wow. That feels like it could prevent a lot of things. Yeah. Wow. So. Well, thank it, you for that. Isn't it nice to have this little moment of science in the middle of the show? <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> he's born in Kingsland, Arkansas, and has three older siblings and eventually will have three younger siblings, too. This is the throes of the Great Depression. So as soon as he's born, like, his family's already dirt poor. They, they're staying poor. Sure. Eventually, there's this New Deal program mm-hmm. where the family gets the chance to move out to some land uh, in Dias, Arkansas, to what they call the New Deal colonies. Mm. 
basically what that meant was if they went and worked this land, they could have it. It was just like a way to get any kind of subsistence farming to people who were willing to go out and work for it. So like homesteading, but with farming. Exactly. Yeah. You go out and homestead this place and farm the land. And as long as you're producing, you can keep the land eventually. Would you believe me if I told you that my hometown as recently as like last year had homesteading programs because they so desperately want people to move to the middle of nowhere? <laughs> yes. I would believe you actually. Yeah. Cause... They'll give you an acre of land free. Just build a house. Yeah. You just have to build a house there. There. Stay. And you get to keep it. Yeah. All yours. Yeah. Acre's not that much out there. Well, it's a house. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's a house. That's true. Uh, still going on. Yeah. But this this program for his family was basically all they had, so they did it. Did his father know any, or did his family, I guess, know anything about farming prior to this? Were they farmers? Or was this just like, we'll figure it out? They were not previously farmers. Okay. So they might have known something, but they just had to figure it out. Good uh, for them. Him and all his siblings, from the age of five, basically, he is working on a cotton farm until he leaves at 18. It is a hard scrabble life. At the age of five, right after they've like moved to this farm, like one of the first years they're there, there's this catastrophic flood, five feet of water. Um, they just have to leave. They lose everything for the crops that year. So like starts off hard and uh, gets worse. Uh, when he's 12, his older brother's working on the farm and accidentally gets cut in half with a table saw. Oh, my God. Please tell me there's no more details after that. No more details after that. Oh, my God. But as you can imagine, pretty traumatizing. Yes. He is trying to, like, make sense of this in church. He's had a hard life. Starts going to church more, starts singing in church. And this is when he starts playing and writing music. He plays and writes around the house. He sings with his family a bit, but... This is the time when he starts performing in public and then starts singing on local radio every once and again. With an instrument or just acoustic? Um, so he a little bit with acoustic. He's teaching himself instruments, guitar, and singing too, but um, he really didn't have any interest in music until this point. So this is when it's starting to really become something that's meaningful to him. The other important thing about his early life here is that as his family is trying to just like scrounge a life together... They are living in close proximity to several Native American reservations. And he is seeing, like, as hard as life is for himself, life for the Native people around him is, like, even harder. Because they've got this government program that's giving them this land, and he's watching not only do the Native people around him live in poverty like him, but they're also just getting, like, totally shafted at every turn the government like they'll sign treaties they'll sign all of these contracts and and you know paperwork with the government and then they'll just completely break the deal but the government will break the deal with them uh they so they will continuously not be given what they deserve they will have land taken from them by fours like just over and over again and so he is simultaneously growing up with this incredibly hard lifestyle and also realizing that there are people who have it off even worse than him as you can imagine, uh, when he turns 18, he decides he doesn't want to stick around the farm, so he decides to join the Air Force. What year is this by now? So he's 18, this is 1950. Okay. And So, so depression's over. Made it through the depression, family's got a little farm now, but he is not wanting to stick around for farm life. Don't blame him. So he goes off to basic training, and while he's there, he meets a woman named Vivian Liberto. They meet at a skating rink. As you can imagine, a woman in skates is just irresistible. 
So they Are, fall deeply in love. I mean, the meet cute is real, but <laughs> the up, uh, the like tired is ice skates. The what's the um, wired? Wired is rollerblades. Ah, see. If he had met her on rollerblades, it would have been a whole nother story. I, I don't think rollerblades existed at this point. They didn't. Okay. No. But I'm just putting it out there that <laughs> rollerblades are way cooler than ice skates. Ice skates? What about roller skates? Like four by four roller skates? I don't even want to talk about that. Oh my. Okay. Inline or nothing. <laughs> Hard stance. <laughs> Hard no stance. No compromise. Uh, so yeah, so they meet a month into his basic training and they fall in love and then he leaves. He gets shipped off. He later releases his autobiography. Mm-hmm. It's like 700 pages. Yikes. But like 300 pages of it is like their love letters back and forth. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they are... Um, it's prolific. Yeah. Prolific love letters. These years are pretty formative for him. One like foreboding or foreshadowing type of correspondence they have, though, is that he will write pretty consistently about going and, and like, uh, sleeping with some woman wherever he shipped off to in Germany or something, and then really apologizing and, like, for messing up and swearing he'll never do it again, and then write similar letters, like, a, a couple weeks later over and over again. Yikes. Yeah, and so early on, there's one of the patterns that they establish is, like, this. he may not be able to keep his word when it comes <laughs> to this. You think? Turns out. While he's in the Air Force, he sees this movie. It's like this film noir called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. Mm. And uh, he sees it and he's like, oh, that's that's a good idea. That's going like, to prison? Yeah, I'm going to write a song about going to prison. Uh, and so he writes what becomes one of his signature songs, the Folsom Prison Blues. I'm assuming you've heard this song I have heard this song and snippets of this story. Yeah, so it is it is this it's such a signature song for him that eventually like when he does his concerts, his his like trademark will be he will walk out and he will say the words, quote, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash because he's plain spoken, I guess. And <laughs> then he immediately starts playing this song. Like every time for the rest of his career. Like this is one of the you know, the trademark ways he starts his act. One problem with this being his trademark song is, is that he'd never been to prison? Well, a, he'd never been to prison. Okay. That is true. B, he stole the song. What? Yes. So it turns out he was really liking this movie, and he's like, I want to write a song about it. And somebody like around him was playing this song called Crescent City Blues. and Like New Orleans? Yeah, like New Orleans. Fun. And the Folsom Prison Blues, the first, the first lyrics go, I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend. I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck at Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. And that's totally plagiarized. The words to Crescent City Blues go, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend. I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Crescent City, just watching life drag on. Wow. There's four, there's four verses. Every single verse starts with the same words and ends with the same words. He changes less than half the words of the song. Oh, my gosh. Does not change any of the music. The music's exactly the same. So he's not even good at plagiarizing. No. So, like, he has a decent voice, and he'll go on to write a ton of popular songs. But, like, his breakout hit, he just, like, he just changes a few words, right? Like, that's—and then steals it. Um, Was there any litigation 
Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so it turns out, like the first time he releases it, it's it's on his initial release, and he's kind of a nobody, and yeah. so nobody pays yeah. attention. But by the time it gets re-released on his later ones, yeah, they sue the hell out of him. Yeah, absolutely. And he loses. <laughs> he loses in court completely. He has to pay like what's the equivalent of almost a million dollars in damages because this is yeah. just like obviously jack somebody else's song. I can just imagine the prosecutor bringing like rolling in an overhead projector <laughs> with two transparencies and just overlaying them <laughs> and yes. you just see like the only parts that are different one of the ironies here right is that he kicks off his he kicks off his career at, with what is going to be this like persistent bad boy image of like being in prison and like He's ne- he will never go to prison more than like what is essentially a night for drunken disorderly conduct, right? Like he, sure. basically, it's all from like stealing this song that somebody else wrote and making it about a movie he saw, and and somehow he just like manages to pull off this mystique where people start to assume that he actually done it, and he's much better and tougher than he is. Right. So he stole the concept and the content. Yeah, the content, the image, just like stuck with him. Right. And he. And he went out of his way to never, ever correct anyone. Yeah. Whenever they assumed that he had been in prison, he just, like, rolled with it. And then later on, as you'll see, like, he started to, like, really dig into it and, like, sell it for all it was worth. Kind of like Diddy saying he's bad boy for life. And you're like, um, I think you, like, worked your way up from a managerial role at a record <laughs> yes, company. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, like, literally, the only thing he changes about this song is it goes from being somebody who's stuck in New Orleans because they don't have enough money to somebody who's stuck in prison because they killed somebody. And he 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 picked the, he changed it to be I killed the man in Reno just to watch him die, right, which is his famous line. And in interviews afterwards, he's like, yeah, it sounded like the... Uh, Sounded like the worst reason to kill somebody, so that's what I did. <laughs> I was like, sure, yeah, that's a bad reason. But, like, uh, he never actually killed anybody, uh, turns out. Okay. So, he's got this song, but he's not famous yet. He, he, he jacked this song for somebody, just a guy on his guitar in the arm, or in the Air Force. He has a pretty successful career listening to Morse code, radio mm. signals, doesn't see combat. And then he goes back to Nashville and immediately marries his love, Vivian, Vivian Liberto. This woman... Welcomes him with open arms. Yes. Oh, she's just thrilled. Thrilled to have him back. I bet their marriage goes really well. <sighs> we'll see. So <laughs> he he, got, he gets back to Nashville, takes up a job selling uh, appliances door to door, hates it, doesn't like it at all. His brother Roy introduces him to friends in the music business, and eventually he gets to audition for this man, Sam Phillips at Sun Records. And this is like one of the kingmakers in the Nashville music business. He come, Elvis. Yes, Elvis, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, yeah. all come through this studio, right? He goes and auditions, absolutely bombs. He tries to sing gospel songs, oh, and the guy's no. like, eh, gospel's going out of style. Come back when you send a little bit. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so He's like, well, actually, on that note, I killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. Are you interested in hearing that story? Well, so it's funny you say that, because literally he comes back a few months later, and he's like, so I got this song, and he plays it, and he's like, you killed somebody? This is perfect. And he's like, he didn't actually kill anybody, but... They're like, it's perfect. So that night he comes home and he's like, he tells his wife, baby, we're cutting a record, which is good because she's pregnant now and about to have a kid. And uh, yeah, it's off to the races. He immediately like releases this single and then releases this record and just like shoots to fame. Uh, Immediately popular, brings with him all kinds of success. He actually gets to tour with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy Orbison, all these famous people coming yeah. out of the same studio. Um, they're like friends of his. Like he goes from being essentially a nobody to 
this star nearly overnight. What I've noticed about a lot of our heroes in the 50s is once they get the right connection, it happens that quickly. Yeah, there's just this like huge uh, gap in the popular culture from all these people who have like been at war or like been like there's yeah, there's there's this uh, cultural upheaval waiting to happen. And like when you find something like the machinery is there to just like put it in front of people. Mass distribution. Right. Yeah. Not competing against other people on SoundCloud to get your your record heard. Yeah, like all of the all of the means of distribution were incredibly consolidated, right? Yeah. You have like three or four TV channels, you have like three record companies. Very few people make it, but once you get picked by one of those, you immediately just get in front of every single person in the country in literally weeks. Like just auto- automatically. Yeah, they have to fill the fill the air. Yeah, whereas now you could go and, you know, get a Netflix special and, you know, barely anybody sees it depending on how their algorithm works. So, you right. never know. You could have a podcast that's honestly one of the best podcasts you've ever heard. And if people just don't tell their friends enough about it, it can mm-hmm. just linger, toil, and obscurity yeah. while the hosts sit here, labor of love, cranking out this beautiful content to very little millions of dollars. Right. If, for example, no one is rating, reviewing, subscribing, or liking your content, then um, you're not going to hit it big with Elvis. Yes. But I will say that much like our journey in the podcast game, Uh, As soon as he becomes famous, uh, women start throwing themselves at him. So on the tours, he is just inundated with women who are interested to get to know him better. That's that colloquialism or like euphemism who are interested in getting to know him better. They're groupies. They're groupies. They want to fuck him. Yes, (laughs) that's correct. I was... (laughs) What do you want me to say? They they were interested in acquiring carnal knowledge about Mr. Johnny Cash. Um, Yeah, so they wanted to sleep with him, but his wife obviously was not super keen on that given that they just had a kid and were about to have a second. Oh, no. Um, And so she asked him, you know, are you ever tempted... And he said, don't worry, I walk the line for you. And he's like, hey, that's kind of good. <laughs> and so <laughs> as they're driving together uh, a few weeks later, he's like, hey, could you write something down? And so he, he dictates the song, I Walk the Line. And so 54, 55 is when this first album comes out. By 56, I Walk the Line is released. It's his first number one hit, like number one single. Mm. And their second daughter's born. And is it? Is it? I actually don't know the song. I I know of the song. I walk the line, but it is it. Does it speak to the narrative of like being tempted with infidelity, or is it more universal? I have no idea. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, people love it. Everybody's walking the line. Yes, temptations here and there, can't stop. Speaking of which, uh, it is around this time that as a touring artist, he meets June Carter. Right. And she's touring with, like, 15 brothers and sisters. Yeah, so she's got a big family act. They kind of hit it off, and they're both married, and so neither one of them is trying to start something at first. In the movie, Walk the Line, it's depicted as a very dreamy love story, and the emphasis is placed on him pursuing her. Based on Vivian's autobiography, Mm -hmm. she says that it was clear they had chemistry and it was very painful for her to watch because they had kids and would go on to have not just two, but four kids together. Mm-hmm. But she says that also June was very much chasing him at the same time. Like over the next few years before they started having an affair and then once they started having an affair. At one point, June approached Vivian and said, Vivian, he will be mine. Oh, shit. Yeah, like that directly to her. 
even though it starts now, this affair goes on for over a decade. Starts in like 56, 57? Yeah. Okay. Starts in 56, 57 and just continues through the next tumultuous set of years um, as he's beginning to like rocket to fame. Does Vivian at this point... I mean, you wouldn't know this. You didn't read her autobiography. But did she just, like, make peace with this? Or was she, like, ready to fight June the second she sees her? No. So I actually read uh, some excerpts from her autobiography. Mm. So she mostly, I mean, she was, remember, just like a girl that he met during basic training. She was not into show business. And so she would be at home raising the two daughters and then the three daughters and then the four daughters. And he would be touring and she would have no idea where she, where he was. Right. And so he would not come back from shows and she would just like, she at one point had to stoop to like posting flyers and like putting ads in the newspaper asking if people knew where he was what yeah because he was just like totally out of contact she couldn't like call the record label and be like what city is he in next she tried so so his manager at the time was like he wrote that he really respected her and he was trying to like shield her from some of like the worst parts of this right um but even he didn't know where johnny was at some points and so he's off like either having the fling or you know, doing whatever, and he can't help her. And and then he'll come back like a few days later and, you know, just pretend like nothing happened. And so, yeah, it was it it was hard and got harder for her. Um, Where are they living at this point? So they've moved out to California. Okay. Sun Records. Yeah, exactly. But that's well, Nashville. They, they were in Nashville. He moved out to California because he wanted to start a movie career like Elvis. Ugh. Did not go of well. Course. He was not a good actor. I mean, Elvis wasn't either, but he was worse. So it did Woof. not go well, but they've moved their four girls out to California. Uh, and he's traveling all over the country. So 57, he fulfills his life dream of performing at the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, at this point, he he actually gets invited because of the song Folsom Prison Blues to play at Huntsville State Prison, which he had never done before. He never played at the prison. But he plays and the inmates love it and this kicks off like his lifelong um, kind of, you know, habit of, of doing these prison shows for the inmates. And he finds like their crowd that really eats it up and it starts to cement this like the assumptions they made about his background mm-hmm. him playing at prisons really like plays into the PR of him having this like bad boy image sure. and so again he just like rolls with it and like gets as much press as he possibly can but imagine you are an incarcerated person and you're in jail for example for having like too many ounces of weed and this pop star comes in this country star and is like hey I, I legitimately killed a man in Reno just to watch him die and you're like I'm sorry, what? And he's like, what? They're like, yeah, we love it. Woo! <laughs> uh, <sighs> yeah, they eat it up. He's one of them. I would feel very frustrated if I were the... That he wasn't in prison? Yeah. Here he is, touring, playing the Grand Ole Opry, playing prisons, playing shows. And this is the time when, on a tour, he's trying to stay up all night driving, and one of his friends for the first time, one of his bandmates, offers him amphetamines for the first time. Dexamil, Benzedrine, Dexedrine, basically, like... Adderall, Ritalin type stuff today. Um, at the time, these were less controlled and also like not really seen as illicit drugs in the same way. Like, yeah, you could just go to your doctor and be like, hey, I'd like to lose some weight. And they're like, here's speed. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but they started to give him these and he was like, well, this is fun. I, like his performance was, he like had a lot more energy. So apparently he just like really lit up on stage when he was taking tons of amphetamines. I can cheat on my wife twice as fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he wasn't shy anymore. He was usually a shy person by nature. That was gone. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing what that'll do to you. 
Uh, and so this unfortunately starts like the first chapter of what's going to be uh, a long, unfortunate history of substance abuse. At first, it's not out of control. At first, they're just doing crazy rock star stuff. So, I mean, it never is at first. Yeah. So the kinds of stuff they're doing at this stage, like before there were the Rolling Stones, before there was this rock and roll history, um, they decide it's going to be funny to like play pranks on the hotel that they're staying in. So they Gross. get to a new town and they're like, what are we going to do? And in this, like, they're either drunk or high or something. They're like, you know what? We're, uh, they go and they buy 500 baby chicks. No. It's a five-story hotel, and they just release 100 of them on every floor of the hotel. <gasps> oh, Just to no. see what happens. What happens is a lot of baby chicks die. Yeah, I mean, that's probably actually what happens, yes. Uh. But they just think it's hilarious. They flush cherry bombs down the toilet oh my in God. these places and just, that, like, blow up the pipes. That's not a prank. No. That is, like... It- destruction of property (laughs) well it's a prank because like at the time because plumbing was less robust it would like blow it out of all the other toilets like water right when Mm. it pressurized it when televisions were new and gigantic and heavy they would just throw them out the windows of their hotel rooms the quote-unquote pranks here is just like destruction destroying stuff as as the drug use ramps up one night his drummer's next door and there's no door between the two hotel rooms and he's like why where's the fucking door why isn't there a door here and they're like sorry there's there's not a door and so he just picks up one of the metal chairs and smashes the wall out between the two rooms what yeah it costs several thousand dollars uh for them to like fix it afterwards but he just like smashes the door i mean you can imagine like it's not quite coke but it's like a, essentially the coke fill rage like just smashes a hole through the wall just because he's expecting there to be one like the last hotel. Like he wants it to be a suite. Yeah, he wants so it to be a like suite. there's like a wall, and it was, but no door. Yeah, and he just smashes a hole in the wall to get to his drummer's room next door. And the manager's like, this is probably a bad idea. Right, your drummer can't be that cool. In the middle of this time, one of the like reasons I feel very conflicted about him is because in the middle of what like is beginning his spiral of like really destructive behavior, he also releases an album called Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian, where he records a whole set of songs about all of the things he witnessed as a kid. The civil rights movement is not yet going in earnest everywhere, but he is like trying to say, these are injustices that I see. And his record label says, this is too you know edgy for the public. And he's like, fuck that, I want this out there. So he starts taking out ads with his own money, calling all the DJs cowards who won't play it. Wow and like self-publicizes when the label won't, ends up getting a lot of airplay for this music and calls a lot of attention to kind of the exploitation that the tribes are facing. So much so that afterwards he's actually adopted by the Seneca Nation's Turtle Clan as an honorary member because they're so grateful for like him highlighting their experience. I mean, I think that's the thing about our heroes is that they're people. We're not trying to say they're all bad or all good. This is the messy complexity of being a human being. You can care about the rights of indigenous people and also smash a hole through a wall. Like those two things can both be true. Yes. Yes, they can. And they were. I bet they still are <laughs> for they, some folks. For so- yeah, that's an interesting Venn diagram. Got to find those people. <laughs> um, at this stage, he is very famous touring popular but his self-destructive behavior is starting to catch up with him late 60s uh we made it early 60s now so in 63 he's doing a show at the hollywood bowl so he's by his home 
His wife is there with their kids. Vivian's waiting for him in the parking lot after the show to see him. And he does this amazing show. And then afterwards, he walks past her and the girls and just like, he literally just says hi. And then gets into his car with June and they just take off. (gasps) No. Yeah. And Vivian's just like sitting there devastated because she's seen a lot of, she's like had to deal with a lot of the stories and like his you know, behavior of not being in touch on the road. But like when they're in California in front of her face, in front of everybody they know, he's just like blatantly checking out of being a father. And then the next few years, he he becomes almost entirely absent to his four girls. Wow. This is the point where he records what some consider his best song ever, which is Ring of Fire. Uh, and it was actually written by June uh, for her sister originally. Mm. But, but June wrote it describing what she felt like the experience of falling in love with him was, right? It was a ring of fire because, like, she couldn't cross this line. Neither one of them... They were trapped in the middle of the ring of fire? Well, they weren't supposed to cross this line. They were both married. Mm. She wanted to, like, not get into it, right? She wanted to stay on the other side of the firewall and then just got pulled into the ring of fire. And so she gave it to her sister first, but then when she had him recorded, it became a smash hit. So at this point, he has a wife who was just, you know, this girl he met when she was 17 and he was in basic training. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now he has this romantic and creative partner in June who is, like, understands the life of a musician on the road who, like, Mm -hmm. can write for him and they can collaborate and is fulfilling. Uh, And so he is really torn between these two places of, like, this guilt about his daughters and this, like, what he sees as his fulfillment with June and things just start to really spiral out of control. His substance abuse really ramps up. And so by the mid-60s, by 65, he's going, he's still playing the Grand Ole Opry. But one show, he's just, he he writes that he was just totally blacked out. They didn't want him to perform at the first pla- in the first place. Oh my gosh. Um, but he got up anyway. He says he has no recollection, but he broke every light on the stage with the microphone stand. Oh my gosh. On uh, purpose? Yes. Or just, okay, it's I was like, like clumsily. You, you don't accidentally break all of them. <laughs> so he broke all of them and they just like kicked him out. And then he was so mad at being kicked out that he then left. And he says, then he went and got really wild. Oh, uh, and then just doesn't remember what happened, but wound up in the hospital and uh, broken nose and all kinds of injuries. I mean, if you go for a prolonged period of time of not knowing what happened while continuing to ingest drugs and alcohol, yeah, you will end up in the hospital. Yeah, that's that's where it's going to go. Um, yeah, he, he wrote that he'd become, he, he'd built this habit of amphetamines and barbiturates and alcohol simultaneously. The Elvis cocktail. Yeah, and it does not go well. So um, over the next, essentially 65, 66, this next year is just like him hitting rock bottom. He gets high and amped up and he borrows his sister's camper and heads out to the forest. Uh, and they make his nephew go along just to, like watch him. But he's just like pill popping and drinking whiskey on the way. He goes off to start fishing and then his nephew smells smoke. Uh-huh. And it turns out he tried to light a fire maybe to like warm himself up next to the camper. But the nephew couldn't extinguish it and the matches are just like strewn about. 
basically the fire, they, they pull him out and his nephew saves him, but the fire quickly spreads. It burns 500 acres of forest <gasps> in like this protected wildlife area wow. where there's these endangered species. It it's takes, not like a ring of fire. It's a wildfire. It takes 400 firefighters a week to put it out. What the fuck? Um, in court, when they asked, <laughs> <In> when, court. <laughs> right? So when the judge asked him why he did it, he said, I didn't do it. And they're like, well, then who did, sir? Because we found it with matches. And he's like, well, my truck did it. And they're like, what? He's like, it, it must have overheated. And they're like, your truck did it? And he's like, yeah, my truck did it. And my truck's dead, so you can't question it. And they're like, you asshole, you're guilty. So they sued him. They won. Basically sued him for a million dollars of damages. Sure. Um, even people who've been criminally convicted or like fined before, since then, apparently he was the first person ever to be convicted of setting a wildfire because he's the only one who ever fought the charges like that. And this is not like the, the worst at the bottom for him. So after this, he's he's simultaneously fighting off these federal you know wildfire charges he's playing a show with his bandmates and after the show when they get paid johnny volunteers to go deposit the money in the bank they just have like a a group bank account like a group chat (laughs) (laughs) Go, go drop it off but on the way there he decides he has a better plan no he doesn't that's there's nothing he could be thinking of (laughs) at this moment in time that would be a better plan than paying his band any ideas no no idea. he's just like driving to the bank from the venue to the bank Mm -hmm. what is it it's got to be like five miles and he's like okay i have this genius idea between here and there yes literally no idea he decides to drive to the airport instead gets on a plane to mexico oh flies to juarez and starts buying drugs okay Wow, that is a plan. Yes, but then it turns out he he can't get a flight back in time after he's bought the drugs. Did he, I'm sure he didn't even bring a passport. Do you need a passport in the 60s? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, that but, was the time where you could just like buy a ticket at the counter and just like walk on. Yes, any that kind plane. Of time. Yeah. And it's not clear if he didn't have enough money for the flight or if he didn't have enough time. But basically, he takes his drugs he and he he gets a car back across the border to el paso but he ends up missing the show the next day because the border agents stop him and they say are you smuggling stuff and he's like no and then he opens the guitar case and he ends up having 669 dexedrine like amphetamine tablets and then like 475 tranquilizers in his guitar case uh yeah Ah! Yeah, and goes to jail. Again, only for the night. Somehow gets out of big charges. Because here's the thing. They weren't considered hard drugs, right? It was not controlled substances. It was the smuggling, like crossing the border. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he misses the show. And he doesn't even have his 1,300 pills. You don't even have the 1,300 pills. Was it worth it? That's what you got to ask yourself at that point. Uh, Yeah, this is what his wife Vivian asks herself at this point, actually. (laughs) And she's like, uh, definitively no. Yes, this is a hard pass. It is over. Yeah. Goodbye. After the international smuggling on a whim and the setting a 500-acre forest fire and, oh, yeah, the 13 years of just, like, blatantly having an affair where you abandon your own daughter I'm out. Yeah. And she divorces him. Uh, The next year he marries June. Sure does. The thing that really helps him kick the drugs ends up not being married to June so much as actually getting really high, crawling deep into a cave where a bunch of people died, having a near-death experience, and then begging God to let him survive and then somehow finding his way out. 
Well, how do you even know about these caves? Yeah. Where is this cave? I don't remember You're where this like, cave okay, is. You're just like, okay, you don't have the internet at that point. Somebody just told you about a cave where people die, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to take a bunch of benzos and check it out. <laughs> well, I think this is also the time uh, where you generally have a lot of signs on the outside of people be like, a lot of people died in this cave. Don't go in there. <laughs> and you're still going in, right? Like, that's, that's your primary source of information about the deaths in this cave is the signs on the cave telling you about the deaths. Right. Um, but he still does. Just armchair psychologist style, if he had this major tension in his life for 13 years, I think it's not a coincidence that, like, by resolving this fundamental tension where, like, he actually gets divorced from his wife and is with this other woman, that also happens to be the part where, like, oh, all of a sudden he's not as dependent on all these substances, right? Like, clearing up the underlying issues seems to have helped him as well. But he does chalk it up because he also found Jesus at this point. He found Jesus, met June, and almost died in a cave all around the same time, or got married to June all around the same time. What a series of events. Yeah, and, and really, I mean, for a while, he really turns it around. He starts doing these performances and gets a live recording of his performance at Folsom Prison, mm. which till now, surprisingly, he'd never been to. Right. <laughs> um, but when he goes and does the song there, and again, he starts it with, hello, I'm Johnny Cash, and then just starts playing the song, people lose their shit. All of a sudden, he's got this nice combination of his outlaw image, he's cleaned up, and he's no longer an asshole to have come play at your venue. It's like Justin Bieber. Yeah, He started out all right, got a little addicted to whatever he did, egged a neighbor's house, Selena broke up with him, and then he found Haley mm-hmm. and Jesus, and now he probably regrets those neck tattoos. Probably so. <laughs> if he doesn't, he's got more to regret then. Um, wow. The next year, 1969, is the best year in his entire career. Okay. He sells six and a half million records. I mean, that is more than any artist, any individual artist had ever sold at that time. In oh, a year. my gosh. So he records his follow-up um, to Folsom, which is uh, Johnny Cash at San Quentin. Uh, it's even bigger than the Folsom Prison album in sales. Boy Named Sue becomes number one hit. By the way, quick side note, A Boy Named Sue was written by Shel Silverstein. What? Yeah. Uh, I almost That almost got me in a tangent that made me do this episode about Shel Silverstein. Uh, but, I mean, uh, he's on the list. But not yet. Anyway, but yeah, that was, Boy Named Sue was written by Shel, Shel Silverstein, believe it or not. And... And and Johnny Cash was given the rights. Yeah, he wrote to the this. song for Johnny Cash. Okay, this was not this was another... not one of the stolen ones. At this yeah, point, okay. he's like actually <laughs> legitimately buying his songs on the front end, as opposed to paying for them and damages on the back end. Got it. Um, but yeah, so he he basically gets his own TV show, not acting, but like a variety show on ABC. Um, he has Bob Dylan as a guest, and Bob Dylan like never does TV because mm. they're friends. He does it, and so basically now after like a decade of drug addiction and his life spiraling out of control. He goes from making like uh, what was a hundred bucks a night to a thousand bucks a night to now making like a hundred thousand dollars a night for his performances. Oh my god. And goodness. it's just living his best fucking life. I mean, like, he gets the girl that he said he wanted. He has unimaginable success, literally more success than any other recording artist in the history of America. And like, he's on TV, he's making crazy money. Uh, and that's when he sleeps with his wife's sister. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And gets her pregnant. So he sure does love a sabotage. Yeah. I mean, just like couldn't hold on to it. Well, that's poor timing to sleep with a sister. Yeah. You right? couldn't have done it any other day of the month, basically. <laughs> like it, that, that is just very poor timing. Honestly, from th- this like really puts a damper on his, on his flow. Um, <laughs> he continues to record, but like... 
from that point forward, his popularity and the number of hits just like continues to decline. He does some other good things in this time too. So in, in the early 70s, he also ends up testifying to the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Prison Reform okay. uh, about prison conditions. Okay. Like he still got this very much like every man soft spot. He just all of the things that he had going in his corner, this like engine of creativity just starts to like falter right. um, after this big traumatic blow up with June. You can care about systems level issues and still blow up your entire personal life. Yes, which he was very effective at. <laughs> right. I mean, like, honestly, if you tell me you've you've had a woman who waited 13 years uh, for you to divorce your wife to ultimately be with you, there's very few ways I can imagine you piss her off. But getting her sister pregnant is probably one of them. Right. You say, fuck them kids about your <laughs> first four children, and then you yes. have and, a fit. And forget about our new kid who we just had. They have a kid right. together now. And oh, still, June and Johnny. June and Johnny have, end yeah. up having one don't, son. Don't they have a couple kids? Oh, just one. Yeah. Uh, Roseanne is the oldest with his first wife. Got and it. then he has a, a son with his new wife. Got June. it. Yeah. So over the 70s, he gets he has a friendship with Billy Graham so he does things like record some gospel albums uh, he does a production of a film about the life of Jesus that he narrates with uh, Billy Graham but his music success continues to decline and he never really hits the creative energy that he had at the end of the 60s um, 1983 he's living on his mansion and is uh, attacked by his pet ostrich no what you could have this what? Yeah, so apparently he liked keeping ostriches, or at least one of them. Right. And they are nasty birds. I mean, mean motherfuckers. They um, can be. Well, yes. This is one he thought he could trust. Okay. And it still ended up clawing <laughs> him in the guts. His pal, the ostrich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it sinks its big talons into his side, tears him open, requires a lot of surgery. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, as part of his recovery, he gets uh, addicted to. To, to pain, pain medication, kill. yeah, yeah painkillers again. So again, begins to like spiral through the '80s. He's essentially absent from public life. Uh, he, you know, he's in his late fifties at this point and does not do well with the life of substance issues he's already had. Mm -hmm. um, he does Christmas specials and things throughout the '80s. Like he, he keeps some uh, career elements going, but really no more relevant music. Uh, in the '80s uh, and '90s, in the late '90s, '99, he does get a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and he starts doing a few covers and collaborations, including a cover of a Trent Reznor song right in the last few months of his life mm. um, with his failing health that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was like originally really skeptical of but really loved once he heard it, but never charts again, fades out into the, into the musical relevance. Into the ether. Yeah. The nether. Um, Which one is it? <laughs> and, into the nether. Into the nether. June dies in late 2002, early 2003. She is going to need a heart surgery. She refuses, and he just, like, begs her. He's like, please get it. I'm not ready to be without you. And she just dies of complications anyway. And then four months later, uh, at Baptist Hospital in Nashville, he died of complications from diabetes, age 71. And so... That's relatively young. Yeah. I mean, it's re it's relatively old for given somebody who was at 100 pills a day ah. on top of all the alcohol. Right. Um, but even for somebody whose career went from like, you know, 50 solid years from like 54 to 2003, right? Right. And included the release of 97 albums, which is just like two a year for 50 years, which is insane. Wow. And despite the fact that he was the only person ever inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, 
the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he was such an incredible asshole to his first wife and all of his children and all of the people that ever had to deal with him for like the decades that he was actually on the road and the fact that he slept with his long love's sister and got her pregnant at the end of it all for all those reasons Johnny Cash is not my hero and let's not forget about the people at the hotel who had to clean up 500 chicks yes oh my god The, the chicks can you imagine not only those chicks apparently at one point they just got in the habit of carrying a chainsaw in the tour vehicle just so they could fuck up the rooms with a chainsaw like also where do you get 500 chicks i mean you had to find a farm supply shop right like a farm supply company i have never been in a farm supply company that had 500 chicks it just seems what kind of farm supply companies are you frequenting it just seems um here's what i'll say after listening to all of this Started with chicks, ended with an ostrich. Started with uh, speed in a car, ended with a major drug addiction. It seems like Johnny Cash has the gift of escalation. Oh, yeah. Can really take it there. He will just crank it to 11. All the way up. You don't need a chainsaw in a hotel. That is too far. He started with a chair going through the walls, ended with the chainsaw even, right? Right. Yeah, not my hero but you got to admire the determination. No, I don't. That's not at all what I admire by him. I admire any social justice work he did. Lots of people have determination without a chainsaw. Like, I have a lot of determination and I don't own a chainsaw. Just imagine how much determination you could have with (laughs) one. I'm picturing it now. If people would like to admire our determination, where can they find us? On social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Your Heroes Pod. You can find us on our website, meetyourheroespodcast.com, where you can send us an email, tell us who you'd like us to feature. Um, If you leave us a review, make sure you screenshot it, send it to us. We will send you any swag that you would like. We have a plethora of stickers, some magnets, and um, we'd love to get that to you. Thank you very much in advance, and until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.